Tortoise. Why kill one journalist when there are 30 ready to continue reporting in their place? That was the subject of a remarkable session hosted by BBC radio presenter James Nockerty, who was joined by two editors from Forbidden Stories, a pioneering organisation continuing the work of reporters who are killed or silenced for their work. It's my enormous pleasure to introduce to you now uh, two really quite remarkable journalists who brought this project to fruition and who are seeing it grow in a way which is quite extraordinary, which you'll hear in the next 20 minutes or so. Laurent Richard, sitting next to me, the founder of Forbidden Stories, and, um, and Sandrine Beyond, uh, who is going to describe exactly how it works. It's a remarkable initiative, and it began in an extraordinarily personal way uh, for Laurent. And I'll ask you, first of all, just to tell us how it came about. Yeah, um, all of that. Uh, we, we start Forbidden Stories uh, almost six years ago. And I'm an investigative journalist for the past 25 years. With, uh, in documentaries, particularly. In documentaries. I was mostly producing documentaries, long-form documentaries for the French public television. And so I, I, I was used to travel in some countries where there were no freedom of the press. I did investigate in countries like Azerbaijan, uh, um, some stories about corruption. I was at some point doing a story called My President is on Business Trip. I was following Francois Hollande, the former French president, who was traveling to Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, who was um, uh, dealing with um, importing um, with, with contracts of uh, gas and oil. And at, the, at that time, I was arrested. But because I was French, I was only arrested two hours. But journalists like Khadija Ismailova were arrested for one year and a half for the same kind of stories. So you knew what the dangers were. Yeah. And, I, and what was the trigger yeah, for I, the beginning of this project? I start, I start thinking about how it's important for us, journalists from democracy, to continue the work of others who cannot ask the question, because otherwise they will be jailed. But what happened, what happened right some few weeks after the, the arrest of Khadija Ismailova in Azerbaijan, um, um, the terrorist attack uh, against Charlie Hebdo on Charlie January Hebdo in Paris. In Paris. Uh, so I, I used to work to Premierin, who was a, um, a Prussian company, who was just right next to the door of, of Charlie Hebdo. And that day, I arrived a, a little bit later in the morning. I arrived two minutes after the terrorists escaped the building. I was not there during the attack. I, I just arrived after the attack. And I was one of the first arriving on the, in the newsroom of Charlie discovering colleagues and friends who were di dying and others were surviving. And so that day, with all the friends and colleagues of Premier Lin, we tried to help the people who were there. So everything, in a sense, from your own experience, knowing the dangers, the difficulties, the possibility of, you know, frankly, death or serious injury or kidnapping, came into focus on that day. Yeah, just right after that day, I start really thinking about what I can do after that, what I can do uh, as a journalist to, to after what happened in my hometown. I was used to film violence, but it happened in, in Paris. And well, I, think, I start thinking about, as a journalist, what I can do or what we can do to keep stories alive. Well, many people will remember the Charlie. I was yeah. in Paris myself in the aftermath of it. People will remember the visceral shock hear of what happened in Paris. Now, uh, Sandrine Rigaud, as I, I said, is, uh, has got a 
a distinguished background of a similar nature uh, to Laurent's. And I want you, Sandrine, to tell us how the thing is put together. After all, there are all kinds of you know, bureaus and outfits of investigative journalism and so on. But this one has different characteristics. And it has this special component called Safebox. And I want you to explain what it is, how it works, and how many people use it. So the Safebox network is really at the heart of Forbidden Stories mission, um, which is say that there is no point in killing a journalist because uh, this won't kill the story. This was really the idea of Laurent. And we started coordinating investigation to pursue the work of journalists who were killed or arrested. And, and now we're offering those journalists, endangered journalists, uh, ways to protect their sensitive stories. And so they share with us their information if they're endangered, if they're working in difficult countries. And we promise them that if something happens to them, we're going to publish their story and we're going to do it as a group uh, because most of the endangered journalists are working uh, in, in alone in dangerous country. They're uh, isolated. But if a group of 10, 20, 30 journalists uh, pursue their story, take their story where it stopped, there, there is no point in attacking them. So there is, a, there is meant to be a double benefit here. First of all, the information is protected. It's held safe so that if something awful happens, we'll hear an example in a moment, the information that can then go out. But the fact that it is known that it is there and it's available for distribution should help us some kind of protection to the person in the field. Yeah, many journalists decide to make uh, that information public, to make known the fact that they have shared with us their You've information. Got a safe bo- Do you have a sort of badge or something? I don't know. Yes. I mean, it's, it's really bad. up to, to the, to the yeah. journalists. Some of them decide not to make it public, yeah. but some of them, like uh, uh, Daraj Media, I mean, it's an investigative yeah. online media in Lebanon, decided to make it public that they were protecting, not as a journalist, but as a media. There are obviously circumstances in which it might seem beneficial to make it public and others where you would want to keep it quiet, Laura. Yeah, it's a really case-by-case uh, yeah. decision, and it's really up to the journalists to decide about should I make that public or not. Uh, in some cases, in some, country, some countries, in some culture, it's, um, it, it makes sense to let your enemies or let the people you are investigating sure. know that you are not anymore alone. And it's true that what is killing journalists because is... Because your value is reduced by the fact that yeah, the information is... Yeah. Usually here in London, in Paris, when if I do, so if tomorrow I'm going to report on a dangerous sure. story, I will tell my editor that if something happened to me, that threat might come both. from that kind of story. So we are... With the Safebox network and with Forbidden Stories, we are creating that large network all around the world with people who are at risk and people who are not at risk. And by making that connection, we can, and by ensuring the survival of the information, we can then protect the the, the story. We're going to hear an example uh, of a story which has got a very sad aspect to it, as so many of these stories have in a moment. First of all, how many people are using it and how quickly is it growing? So now there is around 70 journalists around the world, very at-risk journalists, people who are already... Uh, acting in dangerous, I mean, working in dangerous situations. Yeah, they, some of them escape assassination attempts. Some of them were already kidnapped, like uh, Maria Teresa in, uh, in Mexico. Yeah. So it's, it's really, we address that to very at-risk journalists, people who really might be killed in the next months because of the story they are, they are doing. And our team is going to the Philippines in, in one week from now. So we are... All around the world, yeah, um, offering that way to address risk. Again, it's, it's not a life insurance. And how do they it's, contact it's you? 
So they, we are working in partnership with local organizations yeah. who know the field better than us. We are telling us this journalist is really in danger, or sometimes journalists are contacting us as well. Well, the, the, the latest example of, of what can happen as a consequence of this, of information being saved and then disseminated despite an awful event, is the Rafael project. Yeah, Rafael Moreno was an investigative journalist working in Cordoba, a very dangerous region in the north of Colombia, uh, which is controlled by um, uh, armed group like the Clan del Golfo. And uh, Rafael Moreno was in contact with us to share his information on the Safebox network in October, uh, last October, and he was killed uh, at the end of the month. Um, so we immediately flew to Colombia um, to, to meet his family, um, who knew that he was sharing his information. Uh, we got everything, his laptop, his phone, uh, we got all his documents, and we started, we launched a collaboration with a journalist in Colombia and an international journalist um, and to pursue his work. And we put a lot of uh, expertise in, um, uh, in trying to follow his intuitions as well. He was working on um, corruption uh, on a local level. He was working on mining company, not respecting license, uh, environmental license. And because we put a lot of resources in that, uh, in that investigation, we uh, uncover important stories for his region and for Colombia. He contacted you, I think, in October. What happened then? How did it so, work? So Rafael was more and more concerned about the threats he was receiving. So a few, a few days before his killing, he started reaching out to us, sharing some information about uh, what kind of investigation he was doing. He was investigating mining companies. He was investigating uh, money laundering around some two main clans over there. And uh, even on the very same day of his killing, he was in touch with, uh, with our team. And so this is... This is the first investigation we coordinate after someone did share with us what he was doing. And how, how were you able to bring further forward the work he had done so to, to produce the final result? Immediately after the killing, as I said, we went there and we met, we met with a Colombian journalist yep. directly to see how we can set up a coalition of news organizations based in Colombia, based in South America, in Central America, and all around the world to continue his work. And, and to make sure that it won't stay as, uh, as, a, as a local Colombian story, no, but as it's, a it's a global story. But there's something that is still, in a sense, journalistically alive. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and this is very crucial because all the time when you look at what kind of, the kind of stories journalists have been killed, it's always for very important stories. Money laundering, corruption, uh, human rights violation, uh, environmental crime. Yeah. So it's always very, very crucial for the public interest. It's on the edge. It has to be. Sandrine, tell us what happened after you published the information, six months, I suppose, after Raphael's death. I mean, what, what had you gathered and what did it reveal? So it, it, it proved that Raphael was working on, on very good, good uh, pulse and had uh, important intuitions about what was happening in uh, in. And you'd Cordoba. been able to take it further and, with the help of colleagues. Yeah, for example, we were able to prove he, he, he was explaining that some um, mining companies were operating without uh, licenses, but we were able to prove using satellite images that he 
he was right indeed. So we had means he didn't have because Raphael, I mean, Raphael was also had to work uh, in a fast food to, to live. You, I mean, this is the condition of journalists uh, in those parts of the world. And Raphael had uh, his own Facebook page. He didn't work for media. He wasn't paid for his journalist, but he was doing this most of his time. And his stories were read by his 50,000 followers. At the end, his stories, the stories we published with the 30 partners we worked with, were read by dozens of millions of people. So clearly this is showing uh, to his killers that if they wanted to silence his story, they didn't succeed. And you would hope, of course, that you... And you would hope in future circumstances that, of course, the information that's gathered and put together and other sources are brought in to, uh, to help to, to widen it and make it deeper, uh, does not depend on the death or the kidnapping of the person at the heart of the story to get out. That would be the ideal situation. Yeah, and, and, and this is how, why collaborative journalism is so important. Yeah. Because that, with that kind of collaboration, you are first providing protection. Collaboration brings more protection. It doesn't make sense to kill a journalist if you have 50 others uh, journalists. So this is a collective effort, not about simply protecting individuals. Yeah. It's about producing a more collective yeah. atmosphere for those who inevitably, because of what they're doing, have to work alone. Yeah, you have more protection, you have more resources because you can divide the work, you can split the work, so you can, uh, you can benefit from the, from the reporting from the other teams and, and you can really share your resources. You can, so you, with, with collaboration, you have more impact, which is very uh, important. At the same time, all around the world, we are publishing the stories and the work of the Raphael Project. And this is precisely what we want to achieve with Forbidden Stories. The killers, they don't care too much about the statement of NGO. They care much more to having their own, own crimes exposed. And this is what we are doing by just journal, doing journalism to defend journalism. So Safebox is a weapon in support of good journalism. It's, I don't like too much the word weapon. No, no do I. Uh, let's, let's say it's a mechanism. It's, yeah. a, it's a mechanism to break the isolation, to make sure that we, we can continue the work if something happens, and to let the people know that even if, if you are threatening that local journalist in Mexico, you should know that he's not anymore alone. Um, one of the investigations wh about which you've both written a book um, published just a few months ago was the Pegasus story, which many people in the room will know about either in detail or in, in general. Just give us a quick reminder, Sandrine, of the Pegasus story. Yes, yeah, so the Pegasus project was published in July 2021, uh, and it started with a leak, a leak we received with, the, with Amnesty International, and it was a leak of 50,000 phone numbers. And actually, those were the phone numbers of people who had been potentially targeted by Pegasus, which is a spyware uh, used and sold by NSO, an Israeli company. And, and so we started analyzing. We only had phone numbers. We started analyzing numbers, discovering that there were many journalists, many human rights uh, activists, uh, many political um, opponents in, in, uh, among those, uh, those people. And we started analyzing the phones of the people who were appearing in the list and, and realizing that those people had actually most of the time been targeted uh, by Pegasus. And Pegasus had already been reported on, but it was the first time that we uh, published a, a project showing how uh, important the misuse and, and how large the, the misuse of the spyware was. And it, has a, a major, it had a major impact. It had a major impact. And of course, Laurent, the point is that 
the story that Pegasus, Pegasus encompassed and to some extent revealed to us is one that continues and perhaps even more worryingly than it did then. Yes, and, and it's, it's so that we did this, that project because uh, cyber surveillance is a global threat for democracy. So this is why, again, uh, facing that kind of global crime, we need a global network to tackle that. And it's true that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a common pattern in many countries where we were able to see people like Katja Ismailova. I was mentioning her previously. She was targeted so many times with the Pegasus spyware by uh, the Azerbaijani government. But the, the two women very close to Jamal Khashoggi, Yatichi, and Ananelata were both targeted before and after the killing of Jamal. So you can have an idea of for what kind of reasons people get targeted with that. And being, and being aware of what the danger signals are. Yeah, and, and so and the thing uh, as well is that so we just we, pr we published this project in 21 in, in the middle of the summer. So we are more than one, almost two years after that. There is still no regulation on that. I want to mechanism. just finish because, you know, these sessions are inevitably brief. I mean, packed with extraordinary uh, revelations, actually, and, and, and hope in many ways. What's fascinating about what you're both doing, and I want you to sum this up, perhaps, Laurent, if you will, is that we've had a lot today which is melancholy, uh, journalists in danger and difficulty, but there is also an enormous effort going on, not only to protect them in every way that we can, but to actually preserve their work and let it grow, even if the worst happens. Yeah, I, I think what we are doing with that kind of um, journalism, collaborative journalism, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's hope for the future of journalism. I think we should... Uh, teach more collaborativism, we should it's a good forget about motto, the It's a good motto for the day, you know, for the future of journalism. Yeah. Uh, Sonri uh, Rigaud, uh, Laurent Richard, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Truth Tellers from Tortoise Media in partnership with the Sahari Evans Global Summit in Investigative Journalism, Tina Brown Media, Reuters and Durham University. Tortoise is a newsroom dedicated to slow news and to support investigative journalism, you can join Tortoise as a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash slowdown. Tortoise.